0: Welcome to the Modern Data Show. On today's episode, we are joined by Kai Vena, uh, the global field CTO at Confluent and, and an expert on event streaming infrastructures. Confluent is a complete event streaming platform and a fully managed Kafka service which is used by tech giants, modern internet startups and traditional enterprises to build mission-critical scalable systems. He's also an evangelist, keynote speaker and a trusted advisor to customers and partners across the world. We're excited to have Kai on the show to discuss all things about Apache Kafka, Confluent and Event Streaming. Welcome to the show, Kai. Yeah, thanks a lot. Great to be here. We have a lot of great topics to discuss today. Okay, so let's jump into it. So first of all, could you tell us a little bit more about Confluent? Like is Confluent simply a managed version of Apache Kafka or is there more, more to it than that? Yeah, that's an awesome
1: question. And actually while um, Confluent was founded by the mentors of Apache Kafka, Obviously, it's much, much more today. When I joined Confluent around six years ago in the early stages, um, there it really was selling support for Kafka and expertise. Today, it's a really a complete platform. So it's much, much more than just using um, data streaming for messaging or so, but really the whole ecosystem around integration, data governance. And then obviously also with the move to the cloud in the last years, um, the fully managed service is a key piece of that. But um, how we typically explain it really is that Confluent is data streaming in a complete version everywhere and in a cloud-native way. And this is the combination of what Confluent
0: is doing and how it's also differentiating from just using open-source Kafka and managing that by yourself. And, and what is the typical rationale uh, you know, that you have seen your customers having for using Confluent services versus going with their own deployment of Kafka? What's the typical rationale? Yeah, there's a few of them. I mean, the um, number one, especially in the cloud, is simply that people
1: um, have huge issues operating big data clusters. That's not just true for Kafka, right, but also for our technologies like Spark and so on. And so when you use a fully managed service, which is really completely fully managed, then you can focus on the business logic or integration logic and just hand it over to the experts. And that also then includes not just the operations to reduce the risk and the cost, but also the 24-7 support, because most customers that come to us, they run operational critical systems that have to run 24-7, often for transactional workloads. And therefore, on the one side, it's really about um, offloading the operations efforts and costs, but also reducing the risk. And then what I said in the beginning, like it's really um, much more than just Kafka itself, but the whole ecosystem, because as soon as you use Kafka for more than maybe ingestion into a data warehouse, then you have questions about data governance, about security, about encryption, and all these kinds of questions around that, that we provide both from a tooling side, but then also, of course, the expertise, because just the tools alone don't solve the business problems.
0: Right, right. And, uh, you know, one another interesting thing that I wanted to talk to you about is uh, your role as a global field CTO at Confluent, right? And field CTO is not a a kind of a very popular term. uh, And I'm, I'm pretty sure that I'm not not a lot of people would be aware of the term field CTO. So can you help us understand what exactly is a field CTO? That's a
1: fantastic question, and I get it all the time. And so you're right today, and um, the people don't know about that that much, but um, it's coming up more and more as a new kind of job profile. So it's not just at Confluent, right? But um, you can look at many other um, software vendors in that space, like Snowflake or Databricks or Cloudera, VMware, um, many, many more that are creating this role. And what does it mean? It means in the end that really it's a customer-facing role where you work together with a lot of customers and with that um, see their use cases their architectures but also help with their strategies and with their roadmap initiatives that's the one side of the role i talk to many customers in my case it's really global some other people only in a specific region that depends also on the company And um, with that expertise, then I can share the stories with other customers. But then also it's really about doing thought leadership. So if you take a look at my blog, for example, I'm sharing these case studies and lessons learned. So not just about what's good, but also about challenges and and trade-offs and pros and cons and sharing all of this with others and others is not just our customers, but this is really thought leadership for the broader data streaming community. In my case, or if you go to Snowflake, they're talking more about data warehouse, for example, but it's a similar story. And so it's really about this um, collaboration with customers, with partners, with internal teams, um, so that we all get better in data streaming because it's still the early stage for these uh, cutting edge technologies. And so you, people both internally in our company, like for new hires, but also our prospects and customers in the community needs education about what they can do of that. And as last part, then in my kind of role of field CTO, I'm also a public spokesperson. So in addition to just um, blogging or doing presentations, I'm really also an official spokesperson for the company for doing interviews. Or for example, I'm also working with um, research analysts like Gardner and Forrester to make sure that they also understand what data streaming is so that maybe we can get a new metric quadrant for data streaming in the future. And that's in summary what the field CTO is doing. And interestingly, while this, because this question comes up so much, right now while we are recording, I'm also writing a detailed blog post about this question, and maybe we can link to that in the in the um, podcast then
0: later because it's really a super interesting question and also a very interesting job role. Oh, absolutely, we would love to do that. And is a solution consulting a part of uh, uh, the kind of overall profile or the purview of a field CTO?
1: Yeah, so I mean, the difference is um, that I, what what I'm doing really is not um, supporting that the, the projects and deep a dive, right? So that's where we have consultants, um, or we also work with system integrators, with partners that do the, the projects and we only provide the data streaming expertise. So not on that level, but in the end, you need consulting on every level. So, and as a field CTO in my role, um, I, I solve one of the biggest challenges with it, which is that I can speak to both the business and the decision makers and to the technology people. So, um, very often in my conversations and meetings at a customer, um, there's the CIO in the room and there's also the lead architects and there is the developers and there is the business people that really need to solve their problems. And all of them speak a different language. And and to, to get these nuances right, um, this is the big challenge. And this is also my capability as a field CDO, because I rarely go deep into things like Kafka or Confluent Cloud. No, instead of what I do. I talk about case studies, um, which are interesting for the customer. So when I talk up to a retail customer, then I share case studies from other retail customers that do omni-channel sales, for example. When I talk to a bank then I explain to them how another fintech customer built a real-time trading app, for example. And this then is on a high level. This is where everyone in the company understands it, both the decision makers and business, but also the developers. And then with specific teams, I can do a follow-up and go deeper. Or if we go even deeper, then I bring in other people because I'm not the deep expert, that's our consultants and other people. And um, but on this level, um, that's really where I do the consulting and engagements to help the customers understand um, where they can leverage the technologies we have. And very important also um, where you shouldn't use them. This is also a very critical question. and this is. What you often don't find in the marketing materials of the software vendors, right? Because every vendor has the best tool and does everything, right? But, um, this is really also where, um, people know that I'm trustworthy, right? So I explain them not just where we can help, but also where we need other technologies and how it's complementary. And, um, this is also what people really, um, um, like when I come to them that they know, um, they can trust me and I will only explain where to use it, but also where not to use it.
0: Right. And, you know, I have uh, I will come come to that point in a while in terms of when to not use Kafka. But before I do that, uh, I have a question on uh, how Confluent as an organization is supporting the broader Apache Kafka community. You know, I I know that, you know, the the founders of Confluent were the initial contributors to the Apache Kafka product. But as of now, Mm -hmm. systematically, What are the initiatives you have within Confluent to support the broader uh, Kafka community?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And for um, companies like Confluent, um, uh, this wouldn't work without the community, right? So um, in the end, first of all, um, our product Confluent Cloud um, is based on the same Apache Kafka that you use in open source. And therefore, um, what we contribute to Kafka is not just to our product, but also to the open source community, like the huge investment of Suki by removal, for example, right? This was a multi-year project where uh, most of the stuff was implemented by our team. I mean, it's super hard and critical um, because it's a hard um, operation at Kafka. Um, and these kind of things are not just for Confluent, but computed back to the community. So that's on the on the code level. So and also, for example, um, a few open source vendors have very strange strategies like when they have a security fix, they only add it to their own product and then maybe half a year later to the community. So that's not what we are doing. Right. So and for that, we also have a community edition, which you can use with it added features from us. But even if you use open source Kafka in the community, you can do that. And that's the technology level. And in addition to that, we really do the the normal community stuff you are expecting from um, open source and from cloud services like and we are doing meetups worldwide Um, during the pandemic. It was all um, virtual, but now it's back to um, on premise and um, data streaming with Kafka is, is really such a de facto standard in the meantime around the world. So we are doing these meetups around the world to meet people. And, um, this is really also, again, not just about Confluent. This is about and talks that interest everyone. Like a Kafka meetup is very technical. So we talk about the Kafka roadmap, about best practices. And also we work together, um, with partners, with customers and even with competitors that speak there, like maybe then, let's say Red Hat or Amazon, right? Which also have a Kafka offering. And, um, this is the big contribution. Um, and this is in the end also the business strategy because, um most of our customers already use Kafka and come to us, right? Because they learn about the advantages, not operating it by themselves, getting support, getting additional features. So without a Kafka community, um we would be in trouble. So it's both a business strategy, of course, but it's also the win-win for everyone because you can always also just use Apache Kafka and that's totally fine. That's the community adoption. So um only a small percentage of the Kafka community is then in the end adopting Confluent or another enterprise service. It's getting more and more in the cloud um, but still, not everyone is using um, the cloud
0: service, of course. So, and, and that's totally fine. And this is the great thing about such an open source community, right? So, wow, so that that's that's an impressive thing. So, basically, what we are saying is the the Kafka that is there within Confluent ecosystem uh, versus the open source version is almost up to date, right? There is they are almost all, always in sync. Is is that a fair assumption? it's it's even better than
1: that for the community because um in the cloud things changed a lot so on premise with our confluent platform it is exactly like that so first for example um we um the the, the, the kafka community releases kafka right um where we have uh, 80% of that um and project and um, commitment but um it's the community also with IBM and others um, and then after it's released, we need another four weeks before we release our platform because we need to add additional integration tests to integrate in our platform. But the Kafka you find in our platform then is exactly the same and it's more or less up to date. Only the integration tests need a few more weeks. In the cloud, it's even better than that because in the cloud, in the cloud, where you can do um, r- rolling upgrades, so they are reoperated, and we have the the, the control, right? Um, we don't have to wait for the customer, and um, th- there it's even better because I, I give you the example of the zookeeper removal, which is a super hard thing. Mm. And um instead of just rolling it out um, so that the customers try it out in production, we are first trying out the Sucle removal in our own confluent cloud services. First of all, in development and then in some test clusters, but then we are also rolling this out in our cloud offering. The customer doesn't even see it because it doesn't have to care because it's fully managed by us. And only after we've battle tested it in our cloud service, where we have complete control, only then we also hand this over back to the community where they know it's already battle tested. So with the cloud, this really shifted a lot and it's even better for the community because we battle tested first and then ship it to the community.
0: Wow, wow. And t- tell us a little bit more about the ZooKeeper change. What, what was this all about? What was the motive uh, and how will it impact people now?
1: Yeah, so, um. In the end, in the last, I would say, 10 years, most distributed open source projects used um, ZooKeeper as a key value store for metadata management. Um, That's Hadoop, that's Spark, that's Kafka, that's all this kind of technologies, right? Um, But therefore, the big problem is that in the end, you don't have just one distributed system, but you have two distributed systems, one ZooKeeper cluster, which um, manages the metadata, and then in the end, it coordinates also the Kafka brokers, which is another distributed cluster. And... um, Zookeeper was never built really for that scale and reliability you needed in Kafka. And so in most of the operations issues where you really had a P1 downtime, in many of these cases, actually, it wasn't a problem of the Kafka brokers, but of Zookeeper. And if you ask um, customers or have your own experience with operating Kafka clusters, um, you will realize that most of the challenges are not operating Kafka, but Zookeeper. And so... um, uh, there are two big advantages of the Zookeeper removal. Number one is um the operations gets much easier because you only have one distributed cluster. You only have Zookeeper. Uh, you only have uh, Kafka, which takes over the, the the capabilities of Zookeeper and does it in a much better way, because it also uses the Kafka log and all these features from Kafka for it, which scales better and so on. So, um operations simplicity is the one big benefit, and the second one is that it also scales much better. So. A big limitation in Kafka in the past was that you can have only a specific number of partitions, right? Um, like um, we typically recommend don't use more than 100,000 partitions in a Kafka cluster and something like maybe five to 10,000 per broker. It depends on the deployment, but that's the basic rule of thumb. Um, with the ZooKeeper removal now, you can also do millions of partitions with a single Kafka cluster because um, how it works under the hood now with just Kafka brokers, it was simply optimized and improved. And this is, um, by the way, now the big game changer also to many of these other distributed streaming systems like um, um, a few years ago, we had a few discussions about, hey, um, shouldn't we use Kafka anymore, but maybe Apache Pulsar, because um, what Pulsar was built for is really even more extreme scale in theory, because what they have built is not just two distributed systems, but three of them with um, Zookeeper, with Pulsar brokers and Apache Bookkeepers, so they're three systems. And um, already two is super complex to operate, three is even harder. So we went the other way around and um, we architected in a way that in Kafka, you only need one distributed cluster then, but can now still scale to millions of partitions. And um, this is much easier to operate. And also then, even if you're using a cloud service, it's much easier because it needs less resources than three clusters. And with that, you have huge benefits, um, no matter if you operate it or if you're just the end user
0: wow that's that's amazing right so uh uh one one thing that uh, that always kind of captured my interest was around what happens after you have put in data in kafka right in most of the cases uh right now kafka acts as a kind of you know in in a in in let's say in the early stages of adoption Kafka mostly acts as a message broker in in most of the use cases. Uh, But slowly it then evolves into a complete full-fledged stream processing platform where you're not just only relaying messages from one application to the other one, but you're also processing that data and uh, kind of taking actions on the top of that. So first of all, tell us you know and it's it's all there on the conference website data in motion right so help 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 people understand mm-hmm. what is data in motion how is it different from data is data at and yeah why it's stuff why it's stuff that's the more important thing yeah, so
1: this is really crucial to understand. And there's a lot of misconceptions and misunderstandings here, right? So, um, therefore, one of the first things I always explain is that Kafka is not a message broker. Um, But before that, even it's really, as you mentioned, it's important to point out the difference between data address, which in the end means that you store data on a disk or in a database and you keep it there. And then you do a query to that with a SQL query, with a web service or whatever. So that's good for reporting or for um, training analytic model. Um, But with data in motion, you can continuously act on data while it's interesting. And um, I typically recommend to really start not from a technical discussion, but always start from the business problem, if that helps. And if you ask the business, whatever the business is, it really doesn't matter. The business will always tell you that real-time data beats slow data. So if you ask the business if it's better to use data now and act on it, whatever the action is, an alert, a payment, even just a report, but now it's better than later, no matter if later, seconds later, minutes later or days later. Right. And with that, that's the game changer of data in motion with the streaming platform. That's the high level difference between where well, you still use a data warehouse for reporting is perfect for that. You still use a big data platform for training models. Right. Um, but for many use cases, acting now is more business value, which can be reducing risk, increasing revenue making customers happy and that's depending on the use case, but this is the difference of using data in motion while it's happening. And with that now, speaking about the technology, this is the big difference to a message queue or message broker. A message broker is only here to send data from A to B. And that's great, right? But that does not add the business value. The business value is when you also use the data in real time. And that's not what you do with a message broker. And um, therefore, I explain Apache Kafka as four different components. Number one is the messaging component. That's what everybody understands and what people are using. However, number two, and that's really already the, the thing what people most underestimate is the storage of Kafka. Because with Kafka, you also decouple the systems very well. You put it into the Kafka log. And then every single consumer can consume at its own pace because reality is that, yes, real-time data beats slow data, but most systems today are not real-time and some will never be real-time. And so you get data into Kafka once from a real-time messaging system, from a web service request response, or from a batch workload. And then you have it in Kafka once, and then everybody can consume it. One real-time, one near real-time, one request response and one batch. They are all decoupled because of the storage of Kafka. And this is the biggest game changer um, compared to a message queue, so that you really cannot just do messaging in real time, but also provide data consistency across different systems because most systems are not real time. And this is the biggest value of Kafka, right? Often even more important than the real time capability. And in addition to the messaging and storage combination, which is the core of Kafka, you even have Kafka Connect for data integration, and you have Kafka Streams or KSQL for stream processing for correlating the data. And while you are absolutely right that most of our customers or end users of open source start with the building ingestion pipeline. Even there, even if you don't do stream processing which is more advanced, but even in the beginning, You should always use Kafka Connect for that, right? Because it's part of the Kafka ecosystem for doing integration with databases, with other message queues, with data warehouses that's built into the platform. And you don't need yet another ETL tool or cloud service for that because even the integration and processing capabilities are built on Kafka, scalable, reliable, real-time decoupling, guaranteed ordering, all that's built into one platform. And this this is really what makes Kafka so unique in the market. With a message broker, you need to add another ETL tool with another code base and infrastructure. And you need to add another storage system. And you need another correlation engine. With a Kafka ecosystem, you get all of that in one platform end-to-end. And that makes operations, scalability, and support much, much easier. And this is really why Kafka is so successful in the market.
0: Wow. Wow. That's very interesting. And, you know, while the all four of these components are very obvious and kind of you have explained it in a very nice way. uh, There's one thing I would want to dive deeper into is the very last component of it that is stream processing. And you talked about KSQL DB, right? So first of all, help help us understand Mm -hmm. how is KSQL DB different from, let's say, Flink or Samza or Beam? What's the fundamental difference there?
1: Yeah. So, so let, let's first talk about what's the same, right? Because um, it's really important to clarify that stream processing in general means that you that you correlate data, right? You get data from different systems, um, not all in real time, right? Um, so maybe one is a sensor or log data real time, high volume. And the other one is a database, an Oracle. And the third one is an ERP system like SAP with a web API. And um, you get data in and out of these systems. And stream processing correlates the data um, after you get an event in. And this can be stateless, where you just take a look at one event, or this can be even stateful events where you have sliding windows like always monitor the last 30 minutes or 30 seconds. And this is where stream processing is really this is data in motion, right? You act when an event is happening. And this is the added value. No matter which stream processing framework you choose. And now, however, the question comes up, which one should you choose for your project, of course? And The short answer is that um, from a feature perspective, most of these frameworks, uh, at least the modern ones, right, like KSQL, Kafka Streams, Flink, um, maybe even Spark Streaming, um, they overlap 70, 80% of their features. Um, So um, all of them are pretty good and they have some nuances where they are better or worse. Um, How I typically recommend customers to take a look at that is that um, In in general, because this is all critical pipelines, often at scale, right, the more components or infrastructures you add, the harder it is to operate this end to end without data loss and with low latency and also regarding cost and operations, the, the less systems you have, the easier. And this is, in my opinion, the biggest advantage of using Kafka Streams or KSQL. Kafka Streams is Java, KSQL is SQL code, um, so that you can do stream processing just with one ecosystem because it's built on Kafka, right? You only have one distributed infrastructure in the end. Flink or Spark Streaming, that separates systems, but they also have pros, right? Like Flink is very strong in doing um, stream and batch processing. That's where Kafka is, is not the right tool in the end. And also Flink, for example, has Flink SQL, which is ANSI sql So it's really the same, like you write against Oracle. Um, that's not what K- KSQL is. And then Spark, um, well, it, it's not real, real time, but it's good if you already have Spark in place or Databricks. So all of them have that trade-offs. But in summary, I would say... Um, Evaluate in these categories. Um, if, um, you just want to do stream processing, think about, do you need another technology or is just Kafka with Kafka streams? Okay. SQL, um, enough for that. Then, then it's the easiest and, and cost efficient way. Otherwise, I think, um, Flink is really, um, the other, um, standard on the market. This is the adoption is huge, right? And it's, it's, it's a great framework. So, um, this is the other framework we see, um, vendors emerging around that cloud services are available. The open source community is growing like crazy. So that's definitely a great option. And then, um, I mean, I'm um, also Databricks is doing more streaming these days. Um, but uh, Spark, I would say, is really mainly when you already have Spark workloads and want to also combine that in the same cluster with some real time data, then Spark is good. Um, but these are typically the options. And then there is, again, products or cloud services around these. But I, I would say these are the the standards in the market that you should take a look at. Um, and because that's the same, like we discussed in the beginning, this is where the communities are, right? This is where the adoption is. There's different competitors for that. And th- this is a win-win for the end user. And um, all, I would only take a look at, others, at other niche stream processing engines if for a
0: specific problem that's built for that. But in general, these are the right ones to take a look and evaluate. Right. And uh, in terms of K-SQL DB, uh, uh how is it different from a materialized view right is 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 that the underlying technology the same like you know the way you have materialized view in Postgres uh, you have a few materialized database like materialized.com uh is 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 that a similar technology under the hood or is there something fundamentally different with uh, KSQL DB uh, the, the the
1: fundamental difference is that um we are here talking about data in motion, while something like a Postgres is data addressed. That's the fundamental difference, right? So our viewers in the end you take a look at the data, what it is today. And again, in a database it's a very normal behavior we know because um we store data in our da- in our tables, then we put some use on top of that, and then an end user can query that with SQL or a web API. Um and that but that's data addressed. Um, With KSQL, you do exactly the same and and, and the same with Flink, right? You do the same, but you keep the state in the streaming application and then you can query it, for example, from a mobile app with a REST API and query the current state. The fundamental difference is that the state is continuously updated in real time. And so when you do a query, you can make sure that you get the right information or you can also turn it around and do push notifications after a change, right? You shouldn't query all the time. And this is the big difference between stream processing. You don't query for a change because that doesn't scale well. And um, you get notifications when something changes. And this is the fundamental difference. And here again, um, it's not that one is better than the other. It's really, depending on the use case. Um, If you have a business intelligence tool like Tableau and just want to query data, then a database is Probably perfect for that, right? Um, But if you want to get notifications in real time, like um, when you use your ride hailing app, right, and order a taxi, and this is not where you want to do requests all the time for millions of users, this doesn't scale. Instead, when an event is happening, like the taxi arrives at the location, or when you did a payment and do fraud detection, then you continuously do that in real time. and This is where stream processing is built for, and only stream processing scales well for that in real time. A database doesn't scale for that and it's not
0: built for that. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, uh, talking about this, coming back to the previous point that we talked about, so what are the typical cases where to not use Kafka? I, I, you know, I see that you have written a, a good post about it would love to, you know, for 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 you to share it with the with the listeners as well in terms of when to not use Kafka. Yeah, so that's that's very important, and that's also um, when I go
1: to a customer or a prospect, and um, this is one of the first things I discuss, right? Um, because um nobody is happy in a year if you find out too late that um the technology is the wrong one. So use the right tool for the job and combine them. Um, if a vendor tells you they can solve every problem, and some try to do that, it's not correct, right? Because it cannot work. Um, and with Kafka, it's pretty easy. So um. I would read, and that's what I did in my blog and presentation about when not to use Kafka. You can easily qualify it out in some use cases. The number one use case is um, Kafka is not for complex analytics. While Kafka is for real-time data and you can store it and you can have some simple query mechanisms like a key value query or replay historical data in guaranteed order, for complex analytics, like you do it with an NC SQL query with complex joins, that's not Kafka. It's that easy. So for that, you use an Oracle database, a MongoDB, a time series database. Use the right tool for the job. So it's not for doing complex analytics. Um, It's complementary to these databases. That's why most um, people use Kafka Connect for getting data into Kafka in real time. And then each consumer can decide by themselves. Some consuming real time directly for alerting, but some others need to get into a database for complex analytics, right? So that's the number one use case and the easiest one or the the most important one. Besides that, there's other ones like Kafka often does not do the last mile integration. What does that mean? Last mile integration is, for example, when you have hundreds of thousands of cars on the street, right? Like um, the last mile here is typically NQTT. Um Maybe it is a web API if you're in the smartphone gaming sector. Or um, if you are, for example, in manufacturing to IoT and robotics, then it's also not the last mile integration. That's an IoT protocol then. So typically, um, Kafka is um, for the server side, for the backend. It can connect to clients and mobile apps, but not at scale. So the basic rule of thumb is as soon as you need to connect to thousands of client applications, it's not Kafka anymore. So for example, with Confluent and also our community edition, we have a REST and HTTP proxy. So you can connect from a mobile app to Kafka, right? With um, produce and consume, but not if it's thousands of connections. So that's the other thing to easily qualify it out. And the third one, which also sometimes people try to solve the wrong problem with the technology is. Um, yes, um, we're talking about real time with Kafka, right? But always define what real time means. Um, it's, it's that important. Um, real time with Kafka means that you can do end to end low latency um, around 10 milliseconds or slower which is good enough for 99 nine percent of use cases. But if you want to build a microsecond trading app like on NASDAQ, right? Um, that's not Kafka. And that's also not Flink and not any competing technology. That's not Pulsar. That's nothing like that. Or if you're doing hard real-time for safety critical operations, like um, um, building the next engine for your plane or doing real-time robotic systems for human collaboration, that's hard real-time. That's C or Rust, right? So that's very different technologies. Kafka integrates with them to get the data out of there and correlate it with SAP, for example, but it's not for building safety-critical systems. And so, in summary, really, Kafka is not for complex analytics. It's not for for last-mile integration if it's more than a 1,000 connections, and it's also not for hard real-time or microsecond latency. And that's, in the end, an easy way to qualify out because that's not what Kafka or similar technologies are built for.
0: Wow, that was very amazing. That was very insightful in terms of when to not use Kafka. Wow. So, uh, Akai, looking back on your career and your work with Confluent and even streaming technologies, what have been some of the most rewarding or memorable experiences for you? Yeah, so um, I, I, as
1: I said, so I'm now with Confluent for around um, six years, so that was a time where most people didn't know Kafka at all. Um, today, everybody's using Kafka, around 100,000 organizations around the world. So it's really used everywhere. It became the de facto standard. Now it's really the question, how do you use it and how do you do advanced use cases? So I really see um, the, the two key innovations or things that, that are the game changer. Number one, as we discussed already, is the cloud where you use it really as a fully managed service so that you can focus on the business logic. Here, the critical piece is really, um, um, to understand also that, um, there is many cloud services for Kafka in the market. Um, many use good marketing, um, but most of them are not really fully managed. They still just provision the infrastructure and hand it over to you for supporting it. Um, that's not fully managed. So really do the right evaluations and read the terms and conditions, but fully managed. And again, not just Kafka, but the whole ecosystem. That's really the game changer, including the connectors to other cloud services like Databricks or Snowflake or MongoDB plus or so. That's the game changer number one. Um, and then from a use case perspective, the real secret sauce in data streaming is the stream processing part. Most customers start with building pipelines, because it's the easier part and still adds a lot of value For example, connecting your on-premise applications to the cloud or connecting to your um, mobile apps and sensors and get it into a database, super valuable and at any scale works with Kafka. Um, But then building use cases with stream processing, like um, customer recommendations in real time while the customer is in the web store, right? We all know the use case like um, you bought this item on Amazon, maybe you take a look at that one, but that's more a batch use case. Um, what customers are doing with stream processing is while the customer is doing clicks, um, you do the real time click stream analytics today instead of putting it all into a duper spark. Running a batch workload and sending an email with a recommendation a day later, um, that doesn't work because the customer already bought it somewhere else. But doing these kind of decision makings in real time with stream processing, that's the real game changer. And that's true for any industry. Retail for upselling, for example. In the telco industry for sending alerts to your customers about network outages and predictions. Predictive maintenance in IoT fraud detection and payments right and 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 that's what every industry needs because every industry has some kind of payments and um if you do fraud detection and batch in your data lake you will still detect the batch uh, the, the fraud but it's too late because the fraud already happened right you need to detect it in 10 milliseconds before the payment is accepted And so across industries, the secret sauce really is stream processing. You typically don't start with it because it's more advanced. But when you have built your pipeline first, then it's easy to add one more application or two that do the stream processing later. But um, that's really the innovations we see, the cloud and then the stream processing.
0: Amazing. And, you know, Kai, before we kind of, you know, wrap up uh, our today's episode, I have one last question for you what are the challenges that you see are still persistent in the data in motion? Like, so what are the, some big unsolved problems that you see are still there in data in motion? And what what uh, what yeah. are you guys kind of, what are you guys working on uh, to be able to solve that in the near future? Yeah, so that, that's a
1: great question. There is, again, two different kinds of answers. The number one problem and challenge is that people learned how to develop applications at REST. So um, 90% or even more of the developers and architects on the market in the last um, 10, 20, 30 decades, they built a web service and a database, whatever the technologies is or was, right? Soap Web Services, REST APIs, doesn't matter, right? But it's an API or a SQL. And the database, or it's now a data lake or lake house, but it's data at rest. And that's how you understand how to implement things. Data in motion, and no matter if it's Kafka or Kafka and Sling or anything else, it's a paradigm shift in how you develop applications. Because the patterns are different, the best practices are different, the technologies are different, the APIs are different. So the number one challenge still today is education. Um, people from the university, they get it right because they learn it already. That that is different, but, um, for most people in the market, um, education is the biggest challenge, and, and that's why we have websites like our developer experience, right. Where we train people about how to do that. And of course, on top of that, we also build tools. Like, um, we have a visual coding tool that you can drag and drop Pipelines together like you did with your favorite ETL batch tool, but then it's streaming under the hood automatically and fully managed. So um, that's the one thing to um, make it easier and to help people um, change this with this paradigm shift. And then for the for the people which are already using Kafka and understood it for the first use cases, um, the the real challenges here are really the more advanced ones. Then, like um, I'm talking about security, compliance, and data governance. So these days, um. Many people are talking about the new concept of a data match, right? Building independent data products, separation of concerns, domain-driven design, microservices. That's great to decouple everything. Each business unit can do their own things with their own technologies. And Kafka is the perfect data hub for that because it's real-time, scalable, and decouples the things. But with that, these um, organizational challenges come up. So who owns the data? How can you enforce that it's the right API contract? Um, Who has access to the data? Um, Do you have audit logging for that? Um, How can you enforce encryption end-to-end? These are the questions that typically don't come up when you have your first pipeline from one database to another. But they come up as soon as more business units are using that and um because this comes up so much in the last years and um many of our advanced mature customers they built their own solutions on top but because every customer now needs this then and this is really where we are solving this problem with products on top of that like if you take a look at confluent cloud today um one of our biggest pillars we invest into is data governance with um the same things you actually know from your data lake or data warehouse it's a data catalog it's um governance, it's data lineage, right? Um, this, this, That's not new concepts, but they are mapped from data at rest in the past to data in motion where it's all real time and it has different t- challenges. Um, but that's in the end how we help with education and with products to solve these problems.
0: That was very insightful, Kai. Thank you so much for that. So Kai, as we kind of wrap up the episode for today, we again thank you so much for uh, being a part of the show. It was such a pleasure having you here and learning a lot of things from you. So thank you for your time. Yeah, it was great to be here, thanks a lot.